Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. From Matthew chapter 26, verse 75, and John chapter 21, verses 7 through 17. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Redeemer Lincoln Square. As Graham said earlier, we value questions and those who ask them, and you can text in those questions as they come to you. Cult classic 80s movie, The Princess Bride, there's this character in it uh, named Inigo Montoya, and he is out for vengeance. He's been practicing this one line that he's going to say when he finally sees his enemy. He's going to say this, hello, my name is is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die. And he cites this over and over again, and then he says it when he sees that individual. More recently, there was this uh, movie with Liam Neeson called Taken. And in this movie, he plays this father that gets this phone call from his adult daughter who is overseas. And somebody breaks into her home and is about to kidnap her. And so she calls her father, and he says, leave your phone on because I'm going to be able to trace you. Eventually, uh, he talks to the kidnappers, and this is what he says to them. He says, I know who you are. I I know who you (laughs) Sorry, I'm going to try this again. I don't know who you are or 
what you want, but if you're looking for a ransom, I don't have any money. But what I do have is a very particular set of skills, skills I've acquired over a long career that will make me a nightmare for people like you. I will pursue you, I will look for you, and when I find you, I will kill you. And really, the rest of the movie is him doing exactly that uh, as he goes ahead and tries to, to do that. And there are many movies like that where the movie is essentially, you know, my name is Inigo Montoya, prepare to die, or uh, taken. And, and because why? That's the culture we live in. That seems to be the right response to where an, when an injury happens to us. So this is why if you knew nothing about the Bible, if you came here to this text, John chapter 21, and you see that Jesus has been betrayed here, the son has been killed, he's been mocked, his, the very uh, clothes on, the, on his back have been taken from him, stripped from him, he's been, he's been hung on a cross, the son of God, and if you didn't know anything about the Bible, if you go just based on what we see in our movies, you would expect the father coming down, saying something along the lines of, I know who you are. I know what you want, and I'm going to come with a very particular set of skills that I have, and I'm going to kill you. I'm going to come after you. Because every, I'm going to make everyone who did this to my son, particularly the ones who are closest to him, I'm going to make them pay. That's what you think that would, that's, that's what we think would happen based on our movies. Or at least Jesus, right? At this point in the story, Jesus is back from the dead. He's like, all right, death can't get me. I'm coming after you. You're gone. And yet what the scriptures show us is that there's a completely different response from how we would act. And because of that, it changes everything. It changes everything in our life. It changes everything in the world. And so what I want to look at today I want to look at Peter through a series of questions. What did Peter do? How is he restored? And then how can we actually trust the restorer? We're going to look at what did actually Peter do? How is he restored? And then basically, how can we trust the one who's the restorer? So first, what did Peter actually do? Peter is one of the main disciples of Jesus Christ, if you didn't know that. And you, can, you need to go back to the upper room discourse in John chapter 14, uh, 13, verse 34. And there Jesus has this great innocuous phrase. He says, love one another. He says, love one another as I have loved you. And Peter, I love Peter. Peter being Peter, go, here's Jesus talking about how he's going to go away. And since he loves Jesus, he says, uh, he says this. He says, Lord, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you, is what he says. Of course, Jesus answers and says, really, will you lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, you know, before the rooster crows three times, you will disown me. If that was told to you, as it was told to Peter, that would be probably pretty disconcerting. It bothered him. So later on, while they're walking to the, into the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26, verse 33, Peter feels like he needs to say something else. So he says to Jesus, even if everybody else falls away, I won't. I never will. At that point, Jesus repeats the prophecy, and then, of course, uh, Peter for the third time says, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Three times, he says, I will never disown you. And then he does. And he, and, and he does it when he's waiting outside in the courtyard of the high priest, 
Jesus is on trial. There's a charcoal fire going on in that, in, in that passage. And after three times of, of saying that I'm going to lay down my life for you, he disowns him three times. I'm not that disciple. I'm not with those people over there. I'm not who you say that I am. He says it three times. And then if you go past that, you say, okay, well, maybe he messed up then. But at least he, you know, when Jesus was walking towards the cross, that big beam he had to carry, at least he carried that cross, right? He, he, he protected Jesus from the mocking and from the insults and the injury, right? Nope. Bible tells us it was a North African man who, who jumped in to help Jesus. Wasn't any one of his disciples. Well, at least Peter, you know, when uh, Jesus died, he at least took him down off the cross, right? And put him in a tomb. No, Peter didn't do that either. In fact, what's so innocuous, what's so interesting is all the disciples were were gone from the picture. They're nowhere else, they're they're nowhere in the the text. In fact, this this is the first place that we see that after they betrayed Jesus, their friend, their mentor, the text says they've gone fishing. John 21, this isn't just close by, by the way. This is 60 miles north of Jerusalem. They didn't have cars back then. This is a long way away. These people are on the run. They're fishing. Why? Because they were fishermen. They've gone back to it. They're like, I guess that didn't work out. I guess we're going to go back to our old trade. And they're out of the picture. And so we have, we have to ask, what did Jesus actually, oh, sorry, what did Peter actually do? And I, I think what we're getting here, what we see, is that he was so sure, based on what he just said, where he was so sure, he was so confident His betrayal was not because he was being a bad person. His betrayal was an overconfidence in the fact that he was a good person. Go back to that text where he says, everyone else. I love that phrase. Everybody, those people will abandon you. I never will. In other words, his self-image was how, on how much, how strongly he felt that he loved Jesus. It wasn't based on how much Jesus loved him. It was, on the goodness, it was on his goodness to Jesus. It wasn't on Jesus' goodness to him. And this is the root of his betrayal. The root of Peter's betrayal is that the grace of Jesus wasn't his motivating factor. It wasn't the engine behind everything that he did. And I think it's the same for us. That when you and I go through the motions, when we're just sort of uh, more focused on what to do, than who to be. When we're more thinking about what we're going to eat after the sermon than, than maybe how the sermon might be speaking to us or what it's trying to do and show us, it's possible that grace is not the motivating factor to us right now. That it doesn't move us. And this is, I don't know how to say this more strongly. People think the biggest problem is that they're running away from, from Jesus. The bigger problem is that we don't see how grace is actually running towards us. And we don't let that hit us. We don't let that sit with us. That it's not your love for him. It always has been his love for you. And I think Peter's biggest problem, and I think my biggest problem, and I think your biggest problem, is at the end of the day, at some level, he thought he loved. And he based his life on that. And the good news of this text is it's actually only by failing It's only because he failed was he ever actually able to see how wrong he really was. That it's through the disappointment of how he abandoned Jesus that actually allowed Peter to actually 
get back to Jesus. That's what he did. So that's number one. Number two. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube. All right, well, how's he actually restored? Jesus restores through two processes, toughness and tenderness. And we need to look at both. Let's look at toughness and tenderness. First, Jesus is tough. Go back to verse 9, look on your text, and there's a charcoal fire, which this is one of those fun things about uh, the New Testament. The word charcoal fire only shows up two times in the Bible in the New Testament. One time is when, Jesus, is when Peter betrays Jesus. The second time is right here. So there's a recreation of the moment of, of Peter's lowest point. And then if you go to verse 15, Jesus confronts Peter. And he asks Peter three times, do you love me? And I think because we're modern individuals, we look at this text and we think that's kind of cruel. Like, kind of give it up, Jesus. Why? It's, it's, it, I think it's what goes on in our head. We go, Jesus is saying this, hey, Peter, do you love me? Huh? Huh? Do you? Do you? Do you? I mean, it's just, we feel like it's kind of a, like a rabbit punch, a little bit kind of cruel and a little bit petty, right? But that's because we're reading this with our modern minds. Really what's going on here is that you and I, New Yorkers, our culture, we don't do conflict well. And you know how I know that? Because look what happens. When conflict happens to you, you know what you really do these days? You ghost. You pull back. You don't reply, you end the relationship, you don't text back, you don't confront, you don't actually engage. I've, I've had many friendships, close friendships, end with not a word. It's over. And I think, I think that's what happens, generally speaking, to all of us. And so we don't actually know how to do conflict. We don't know how to actually restore a relationship, and it creates a lot of evil because there's no possibility of any reconciliation in the paradigm that we're living in right now. So look at the steps Jesus takes. Step number one, he spends time with the offending individual. This, this context here in John 21, they're having this sort of fish by the water party, and Peter shows up. You don't see Jesus go, oh, hey, Peter. I'm not going to look at him. I'm not going to notice him. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't ignore him, number one. Number two, he brings up the issue. By the way, you can stay in relationship with somebody and then never talk about it. But no, Jesus talks about it. Not once, not twice, three times. And the reason why is to mimic the three denials and the three statements that Peter makes earlier. Number three, he creates space for change. He doesn't just uh, be in the situation with Peter. He doesn't just bring it up. And probably the most important part is he creates a space where something can happen. It's hard to see in our English text, but these three questions are all slightly different with different Greek words. And a lot of commentaries you know, disagree about the nature, why that's important. 
for us, what matters is that the repetition each time is bringing Peter to another step where, by the way, look at the, the third time, verse 17, it says Peter was hurt. So that means there was a movement. It needed three questions to get Peter to the place where he's hurt. The Greek word here is of mental distress or despair or sadness. And when, he's, when he gets distressed, there's a change in his answer. It's not just, I love you. It's, Lord, you know all things. That's an important distinction. Because I think what's happening for the first time, there's a break in Peter's uh, self-conception. It's no longer what I love you. It's, Lord, you know me. Lord, you know something. You, you see me. I think he's, there's a, there, he's starting to see the error of his way is not so much how much he loves Jesus, but how much he already knows that Jesus loves him. And so go back to the paradigm. If you want a paradigm for how you should do, you know, conflict, put yourself in a situation with somebody else. Don't ghost them. Bring the issue up. Create space, though, for change. I I bring that up because I used to work with college students, and they were like, should I confront my roommate? And I'm like, well, what's your goal? To tell them how I feel. Not the right goal. Because that's, that's not creating a space for the change. You need to put yourself in a place where you're allowing them to not stay in the state that they're in. It's a cruel thing to do to leave somebody in a state that they shouldn't be in. But the, also the reason why you should create a space for change is maybe you have to be open to the fact that maybe you need a change. Maybe you saw something the wrong way. And you'll never, get, you'll never be confronted on that if you never actually confront. You get to stay in that state of, they're in that state of ignorance because they don't know any better, but then you're in that ignorance, and so we're all a bunch of ignorant people thinking that we're better than somebody else, and then we don't actually ever have to tell anybody how we really feel. But when we create that space, it allows for change. He doesn't, Jesus does not leave Peter in his state. And so I guess I want let's, to, let's turn this back onto ourselves now. Where might in your life right now Jesus might be confronting you? Maybe he's putting himself in, in, in visibility of who you are. Maybe he's saying not once, not twice, three times to you. He's trying to sh- get through to you t- to help you see something that you may not want to see. Where might that be happening in your life right now that you don't really want to see? I don't want to know. I see no evil. I hear no evil. I speak no evil. Where might that be happening? Graham led us through confession earlier. We do confession every week, not because we want to beat ourselves up, but confession is a space where we can be honest to ourselves and to each other because it creates a paradigm where there might be able to be change. And so that's tough. That's tough love, number one. But two, there's tenderness here. Jesus, start with toughness, but there's tenderness. After every question, that's tough. Do you love me? Which would be really, you know, think of your closest friend. Think of your closest individual. That person looks at you and says, do you love me? Do you love, I mean, over and over, that's tough. But then there's tenderness. Because the phrase after each one of those tough statements is, feed my sheep. And at first you think that's kind of a command, and it is. But there's a tenderness there. Because if he just wants to shame Peter, if he just wants to kind of knock him down, you just say the first question. You wouldn't say, feed my sheep. The word my is a possessive term. It's, and sheep was a, a, in old, ancient Near East, this was a, a precious commodity. 
right? This was your livelihood for shepherds. So to say, feed my sheep, he's saying, Peter, you were the most untrustworthy. I don't trust you. You denied me three times, but guess what? I trust you. I trust you with my sheep. That's tenderness. You were wrong, Peter, but now I'm going to put you in charge. You abandoned me, Peter, but now here are the keys to the church, and I want you to lead everything else. And that's where the, this changes so much for, in our hearts, because at first we think Peter's, um, Jesus is rubbing Peter's uh, sin in his face, and actually he's, he's rubbing Peter into, into his grace. You think Jesus might be trying to hurt right here, but he's actually trying to heal. I went back this week, and I just looked at all the—I love all those YouTube videos where there's, like, the little child that's in the, the eye doctor, uh, you know, waiting room, and, and the kid's struggling because they're touching his face. They're trying to put glasses on, and he's like, ah! And then for the first time, you can see. And there's just this, like, whoa. And there's a version of this with hearing aids or implants, right? They can't hear. And yet for the first—and they're struggling. Ah, I don't want to—ah! And then for the first time, they can hear the mother's voice. And that's when they realize, oh, I thought you were out to hurt, but you're actually out to heal. That's grace. It's, grace is always given. You don't get it. You don't take it. It's given to you. It comes to you. And it's only then that the phrase in Romans 5, while you were sinners, Christ died for us, that phrase makes no sense without grace. And when you get that, it doesn't, it's not just a, intellectual concept. It's, it's a personal experiential move to us. Because real grace grabs us. Real grace breaks through to us. It comes after us. Go back to our text. Remember how I said that these guys are 60 miles away? Look at verse 14. This was the third time Jesus uh, uh, appeared to them. This is Jesus coming after them, running towards them. Wherever you're going to go, I'm going to come after you and reveal myself to you and show myself to you. And Jesus is doing the same thing for you too. He's coming after you with toughness and tenderness. And if you actually got that, if you finally saw that, you know what your response would be? Verse 7. It's that in verse 7, Peter says, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him and jumped into the water. It's actually kind of a funny, funny thought if you think about it. I'm going to put on my clothes and jump into the water. That's not logical. There's nothing about putting on your outer garments that's going to let you swim better. That's actually the right response. When grace hits you, when you finally get it, you're not going to necessarily make decisions that look smart to the world. Not even really be smart maybe at all, but you're just going to try to get as close as you can to Jesus as fast as you can. And that's exactly what Peter did. He wasn't thinking about every, anything else. He just said, how can I get close to him? Where are you, are you jumping overboard for Jesus? Are you putting yourself in the position where you can see him and be with him? That's why the miracle in this text, it's not the 153 fish. The miracle of this text is that Jesus cooks a meal for his betrayers. Right? That in Jewish culture, a meal was the highest form of hospitality. This was, you don't cook meals for people that you're not good with. So the fact that he did meant that he was saying to these disciples, we're okay. 
We're in. We're back. And this is not, by the way, this is not a, a, a cheap meal. This was an expensive meal. Because at some level, Jesus, the only way he could serve the betrayers is he had to take their sin. He had to separate them from their sin, and he had, he had to say, yeah, you did this, but I'm not going to condemn you for it. I'm going to pay for it myself. And actually, I did that on the cross a couple days ago. And if you felt that, if you saw that, if you experienced that, that's grace. That's grace in that moment. And so last point, how will we trust him? How can we put ourselves in this position? I think there's at least two reasons for why we can trust Jesus here. Number one, this is always the pattern of the gospel. The pattern of the gospel is always, you only get the resurrection after the cross. You only get life after death. You only get to the lightness through the darkness. Christianity over and over and over again always works not through you thinking, I got to be strong. I got I to pull myself together. I got to be, I got to love Jesus more. That's what Peter thought. That's not how it works. It's realizing perhaps that we should, but we never would. We never will. Not enough. It took three tries for Peter to say, I love you, Jesus, before he got to, Lord, I know Jesus, you love me. I know, Lord, yes, Lord, I know. Where are you doing that? Where are we saying, I'm worse than I thought, but I'm more loved than I'm thought? See, to Peter, what Jesus is saying is, plunge your sins into my grace. That's what will make you great. That's what will change you. And so to you and me, your failures are actually just the fodder. It's the place, it's the context where you can actually finally, fully, and completely feel his love for you. It's kind of like grace is, is, is like coal under immense pressure, under immense time. It takes a long time. But through that pressure and time, you get diamonds. It's like a precious metal in, in, in a furnace. It's pretty, but you can't really see it. But when that refining fire burns off the brokenness and flaws and hurt, that's when you see the true beauty. That's the pattern. It's always been that pattern. It's the pattern of the cross. It's the, it's the pattern of life. It's the pattern for your heart. Number one. Number two, you can trust him because it's actually only through failure that you can get greatness. What do I mean by that? I actually heard a commencement speech Years ago, it was J.K. Rowling. She was speaking to a bunch of people who were graduating. They were the successes of graduating on their day. And she had the audacity to say, you'll never be great without failure. She said, it's failure that strips away the non-essential. And what she meant by that is, is you and I have these self-salvation paradigms of how we're going to make it, how we're going to pull through. Failure knocks every single one of those things off and shows us that it doesn't work. And yet through that, go back to Peter. It's only now because he's most broken that Jesus can look at him and say, now you're most prepared to lead my people. You failed the most, and now you're going to be able to see the depth of your heart and brokenness so that you can actually lead other people. And I'm going to use you the most. This is why it's so counterintuitive, that the more you know your flaws, the more you're going to see his love and grace towards you. 
and that's going to make you most fit to lead. And I say this to everybody. This is to everyone in this room. The more you know your flaws, the more you will see his undeniable grace towards you. I think we try to hide ourselves from our flaws because we don't want to see them, but we we don't see what, what we're missing. We're missing the grace that's offered to us. Because the more that you see your, the grace given to you, the more love you get, the more you're going to be able to turn around and love other people. The better you're going to be able to feed the sheep of the world. You and I will only be prepared to serve each other, to turn to each other and love each other to the degree that we realize that we're probably the least prepared people to do that. That you're most ready when you realize that you're least ready. It's through failure. That's why you can trust them. I'm not telling you Show me your resume, then you're in. I'm saying, show me the resume of all your failures, and then you might have the chance. And that's what's so unique here. Why is it unique? The world tells you if you're a failure, you're out. The world will tell you if you're a failure, you can't come back. But grace says failure is the prerequisite, not for the end, but the beginning. You can't even start until you fail. Because... The more you have been forgiven, the more capable will you be to forgive other people. You want to know why you can't forgive people in your heart? Because you don't feel like you really need to be forgiven yourself. But when you feel forgiven, you actually have the bandwidth to forgive other individuals. And the more you can have that bandwidth, guess what? You're going to be able to lead them too. Um, this past week I saw, it's on, H, on uh, one of those apps uh, streaming the Dear Evan Hansen movie. And I, I love the, the musical itself on Broadway, still there. But the movie's centered around this boy who lies to everybody. He, it's a bad lie. He's so ashamed. The whole, he, he had animated his entire school. And when that truth comes out, you know what happens to him? He's shamed. Not just himself, everybody else. You can't come back from that. He was, uh, an out, out, he was already an outsider. He became inside. Now he was thrown back out. And he's sitting in the movie, he's sitting with his mother, who he had hurt, who he was estranged from, who the, his lies had impacted her as well. And she says this to him. He's, she says, Evan, I know you. I've seen you to your core. I know everything about you. And I still love you. And I'm still here for you. And I will never leave you. I will never move away from you. There is nothing that you can do for you to lose my love for you. And then as they embraced, in the movie, it was actually better than the the play, the musical. There's a sort of transformational stability that he gets, that he can go out and be okay again. (laughs) He can manage life again because of the love of his mother. And I just, I can't help but thinking, if we know that motherly love can be transformational like that in our hearts, how much more would it be that if the God of the universe saw all of your brokenness, knew all of your shame, all the secret things you don't want to tell anybody else about, he sees you to your core, all your flaws, and he looks at your utter core and says, I love you. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And I'm going to live and die for you for all of eternity. If you actually let that hit you, if you let that just sit in your life, you'd be utterly transformed.
we would be completely different people. And that's exactly what happens to us on the cross. You're not loved based on the basis of how much you love him. You're loved based on the basis of how much he's loved you. And that means the best leaders I know are not the most gifted. They're not the most talented. They're the ones who have been the most broken and the most forgiven. I promise you, everybody in this room, you've probably denied Jesus three times or more, maybe many times over. And yet, the only way we'll recover is if we see Jesus looking at us saying, do you love me? All week I've been saying, I've been hearing Jesus say, do you love me, Michael? Plunge your flaws into my grace. Do you love me, Michael? You, I love you more than you could possibly know. You can't even fathom it. Do you love me? Because I love you. Friends, last thing to do here is just come to Jesus. He isn't rubbing your face in your flaws. He's smothering you in his grace. You can't even see it because you're not even looking for it. Just spend some moments in your day-to-day life saying, the promises that were given to me are applied to me. I hold on to them. I want them. Plunge your heart into his grace and you will be lifted back up out into life again. Don't run from Jesus like Jonah, the series that we've been in, in despair. Don't, don't fall down to Jesus and not let him resuscitate you like Elijah. And certainly don't sit in your despair and rely on what you've done. Rely on what he's done for you. And if you do, it will change you. And if it changes you, it will change this world through you. As the hymn writer says, think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, you, you're a child of heaven. Canst thou repine? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I believe, but I help my unbelief. I'm definitely no better than Peter. I'm far from Peter. I think we all are. And yet we've missed the boat because we've relied on our own thinking of who you are. I pray that we would allow the toughness and tenderness of your love to impact us so we would jump overboard for you. I'd love to see a church of people throwing their cloaks on and jumping in in and swimming towards you. The ups and down of life, Father, so, so we've designed a culture of entertainment and distraction, and so we don't just sit in the space of our own needs and hurts and your love and grace. I pray that we would do that now and always. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already, and we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.